Today's passage comes from Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 to 18. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, settled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but, but where's, the, where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in water, that, in water and bond, bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have now withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place of the Called the, called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of, the, gate of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. The grass weathers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Good morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Paul Bang. I'm just kidding. We have, he's not here, so he can't stop me. Uh, we also have a lot of newcomers today. Um, when I call your name, if you could just give a quick raise of your hand so we can recognize you, and then uh, we will welcome you as a church all together at the very end because there's a lot of people here today. Um, okay, uh, Caitlin and Ekim, somewhere out, right over there. Uh, Victoria and Jen, uh, right back there in the corner. Uh, Christy and Julie, and then Angelique and Youngman. Okay, and then if you could all just start singing a song. I'm just kidding. Welcome. Okay, so as I said, my name is Pastor Paul Bain. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm Pastor David. Good to meet you. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, as I've gotten older in life, there's this weird thing that's kind of happened to me. Uh, when I kind of first started out in my life, I had this terrible problem of basically saying uh, everything on my mind. And so my perpetual problem in life was that I was always 
regretting something that I had said because I was kind of like a shoot from the hip sort of guy. And then so just like whatever came to mind, I would just sort of kind of say. And then inevitably what ends up happening is, you know, people get upset and they get offended. And one time I was so like cavalier about this. Somebody actually had the courage to come up and tell me. They're like, hey, I just want you to know like uh, yesterday, you know, during Bible study when you said that, when we were sharing, uh, it really kind of hurt my feelings. And then I was like, oh, wow, thank you for telling me. But honestly, I, I don't really care. Uh, I wasn't even trying to be mean. I wasn't trying to be mean. I was just like, I wasn't thinking. I was just saying it, okay? And that was, that was sort of my big problem as I was younger. As I've gotten older, the problem has kind of gone in the opposite direction. I tend to have more things that I regret not saying rather than things that I did say. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever had that, but like, sometimes you're in a conversation with somebody, especially if you're in a fight, and then like after the fight is over, you're like in the shower and you're like, Oh, man, I just thought of something that would destroy them if I had thought of that comeback. Oh, man. Okay, next time this comes up. Um, and that, that, that's kind of how I feel right now. Um, I've been going through this like, sort of series through Ephesians, and uh, we should be, in theory, at Ephesians 4, but honestly, there's something that we left behind in Ephesians 2 that I, I really kind of want to get at. It, it's sort of a thread of a thought that we kind of started, and I'd, I'd like to kind of go back to that thought. So I want to backtrack a little bit to Ephesians 2. Um, and in case you're wondering, like, no, there wasn't a mix-up in the scripture, we're, we're going to be in Genesis 22, but I just I want to lay the framework for how we're going to look at Genesis 22 by first going to Ephesians chapter 2. So we just need to do a little bit of groundwork before we jump into it, okay? So let me refresh your memory about Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul is describing and instructing Christians in rich detail about what salvation looks like, what kind of benefits it gives, and what kind of effects and impacts it has on the life of the individual Christian. Now, in the midst of all of this about how you're justified and you're forgiven and you're raised and you're united and you have all these things, in verse 10, he has this really interesting line, and he says this. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, this is a wild statement the Apostle Paul is making here. Okay, if you really think about what he's saying, he's saying this, okay? The Apostle Paul is saying that each and every Christian, we are the work of God, that he is the master artist, and he is shaping us, and he is molding us. And up until now, it's like, yeah, okay, I'm fearfully, wonderfully made, right? It's pretty normal, nothing unexpected. But then for what? Why is he shaping us? What is he changing us? For what good? For what purpose? For good works, the Apostle Paul tells us. God is shaping and preparing us to do good works that he has prepared beforehand for us. What does that mean? It means this. It means that all the things that we will eventually do in this life and that we've already done in this life that are good and God-glorifying and holy and righteous and humble and obedient, all of our acts of obedience, all of our acts of true holiness and true righteousness, all of those are things that God has preordained and predestined and foreordained for us. That even our good works, God has planned out in advance, and he is preparing us to do those good works. And I know all that can sound like really kind of vague and sort of confusing. So what I want to do is look at Genesis 22 as kind of like an illustration, a case study of sort of this principle in action. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you've almost definitely heard this story of Abraham and Isaac, okay? And if you know anything about Abraham, you know that he had many sons, 
And many sons have Father Abraham, right? Right hand. I'm just kidding. Okay. Uh, the way this passage is normally discussed in church, it, it tends to go one of two ways, right? Either A, we say, look at Abraham, father of faith. He trusted God so much. He loved God so much. He honored God so much. He feared God so much that he was willing to give up the one thing he had waited his entire life to receive, his son Isaac. Wow, father of faith, now go have faith like Abraham, right? Or if you have a church that's like a little bit more like hardcore, they'd be like, go repent that you don't have faith like Abraham, okay? Because all your faith up until now was filthy rags, okay? And so it kind of goes down that way, right? Or the other way that it goes, and this is sort of the, the popular trendy Christological direction, right? They say, look at Isaac, silent and willing to go onto the altar to be offered up as a burnt sacrifice. Jesus is the true and better Isaac. He knowingly goes, willingly goes, and doesn't almost get sacrificed. He actually dies as an offering to save his people. Isn't Jesus so good? Now, I want to say amen and amen, right? Like, both of those are totally true. They're totally good words. I have no problem with any of that. I've been personally blessed by both types of sermons at many, many different points in my life. But this morning, I want to offer you a slightly different perspective, a slightly different view of this story. And so we're going to look at it as sort of an illustration, a case study of Ephesians 2 sort of in action. So let me offer you a roadmap of where I'd like to go today with you. Uh, in case you get lost or I get lost, we both know how to find our way back, okay? So here's the roadmap. First, let's talk about the life of Abraham. What has he been through? What are all the things that have happened to him that led him up to this point? If you're taking notes, you can entitle this section, The Journey to the Mountain. Number two, now let's re-examine the story of Abraham and Isaac on the mountain. This is a section that I have entitled, The Mountain. And the number three, what does that mean for us today? How does that apply to us? What does that tell us about Ephesians 2? And this is a section I've entitled, Our Mountain, okay? So the journey to the mountain, the mountain, and our mountain. I tried really hard to work in multiple mountain imageries for the sake of consistency, okay? So how do we get to the mountain? Let's do a quick dive and review into Abraham's life, okay? So the Bible really starts to talk about Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. But in Genesis 12, he's not Abraham, he's just Abram, because he's not eating pork at this time. I'm just kidding. It's just a joke on the ham. It's just a bad joke. Don't worry about it. Uh, okay, so in Abram, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls out to Abram, and he says, Abram. I don't know if that's, what, that's probably not what God sounds like, but it's just, it's just how I imagine God called him, right? And he says, I want you to leave the land of Ur, okay, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And then he says, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you many offsprings, and your descendants will become a great nation, and I will give you the land that I am about to show you. And Abram says, that sounds pretty good to me. I don't know if he said that, but he did. He obeys. So I assume he thought it sounded pretty good to him. So he leaves the land of Ur. He goes into the land that God is showing him. But while he's traveling, there's a famine that hits the land. And because of this famine, Abraham detours to Egypt. And while he's in Egypt, he does this shady thing, right? He looks at his wife, Sarai, and she says, man, she's good looking, right? And then up until now, you're like, yeah, good. You should think that about your wife, right? But then he says, man, she's so good looking. Someone might kill me to marry her if they find out I'm her husband. So instead of saying, this is my wife, he starts telling everybody, this is my sister. And he tells his wife, please tell everybody I'm your brother. That's kind of weird, but all right. Whatever works, works. 
And then so when they get to Egypt, they come up with this plan, and when they get there, uh, sure enough, Abraham is exactly right. All the Egyptian guys come a-calling, right? It's all these princes and all these rulers and all this royalty, and they start trying to woo on, on, on Sarah, right? And, and, you know, Christian ladies in the church, all of you know what this looks like, right? There is what I like to call the phenomena of the new single Christian girl at a church. And what that is is when you're at a church that has had the same members for a long time, and then a new girl comes in, suddenly all of these guys who never hang out or, or anything, all of a sudden, they just want a fellowship all the time, right? And they're like, oh, like, hey, we're going to go out for lunch. Like, do you want to come? What, do you want to carpool? Like, oh, where do you live? Like 30 minutes out of the way? Oh, no worries. Like, yo, I'll carpool. I'll drop you back off. And suddenly they're like volunteering for this like non-existent shuttle service. And then, you know, for the last three years, we're like looking for someone to do like a five-minute shuttle ride for the KM Senior Citizens. But as soon as like a single Christian sister comes in, they're like, oh, yeah, I'll sign up. Like, oh, yeah, you want a ride? I'll take you. Like, you want to go community group? And all of a sudden, they're, they're so interested, right? And they're just, they're just banging down the door. And, and if you're a single Christian sister who's been to a new church, you've either witnessed this or you've experienced this. Okay? And this is exactly kind of, maybe not exactly, right, but, but pretty similar to what's happening in Sarai in this, in this situation. By the way, we are still looking for a shuttle driver on the KM side, uh, I'm just saying. So uh, all you single guys, I'm watching you. All right. So eventually Sarai catches the eye of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, cool, let me, let me take you to be my wife. And because you know, Abraham is supposedly her brother. He starts being really nice. He's like, hey, dude, here's all this stuff. Like, here's all this gold. Here's all this silver. Here's all these animals. Here's all this stuff. Get rich, whatever, man. I don't care. But what happens? Well, God's like, Abram, I got your back. Like, I know you lied, but I got your back. And so he comes to Pharaoh, and he's like, hey, you're going to die because you took my servant's wife to be your own. And Pharaoh's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, Sarai, that's Abram's wife. And so Pharaoh comes to Abram's like, dude, why did you lie to me? And Abram's like, oh, like he comes clean. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. Like I was scared. I was worried you might kill me. And I was worried somebody else might kill me. He comes clean. And Pharaoh's like, eventually he's like, okay, dude, just get out. Like get out. I will give you more gold. I will give you more silver. I will give you more livestock. I will give you everything and let you leave a rich man because I want to be on your good side and I want your God to forgive me. But please leave the land of Egypt and take your sister wife with you, Okay. And so he does this, and he goes out, and Abraham becomes so rich that between him and his nephew Lot, there's literally not enough land to sustain them. They have too many animals and not enough water and grass. So they decide to split up. He says, okay, Lot, you go this way. I'm going to go this way, and then we'll do that. So they split up. And while that's happening, all these foreign kings, they make an alliance, and they invade the land that Lot is in, and they kidnap Lot, and they capture all his stuff. And Abraham, against all odds, leads a military charge in order to recapture his nephew, defeats these kings, gets everything back, and the kings are like, man, surely your God delivered your enemies into your hand today because they're like, there's no other way you could have won this military victory. And while all this is happening, God gives Abram a promise, right? And he says, he reminds Abram, he says, Abram, I promise you, I'm going to give you a son. And he makes a covenant with him. And he says, I'm gonna give you a son, I'm gonna give you an offspring, and your offspring will fill the earth. And so what happens? Well, Abram's like, okay, but I'm really old. What if that doesn't work out? And him and his wife Sarai come up with the with the plan. And so they say, okay, hey, Abram, I've got this servant, Hagar. Why don't you sleep with Hagar? And then we can have a son through Hagar, and then that can be sort of our, our son and heir. So they do this. And obviously, this goes uh, terribly. Uh, you know, Sarai is very upset after the fact 
that it happens, right? Uh, but even after this happens, God again comes to Abraham and reminds him again of his covenant. And it's, it's, it's important to note here that at this stage in the story, Abraham is now 99 years old. He left the land of Ur at 75. So he's been doing this and waiting for about 24 years now. But this time when God tells Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you offspring. Abram laughs at the impossibility of the situation. He doesn't say, yes, Lord. He doesn't say, you know best, Lord. He doesn't say, how great are you, Lord? He laughs at it. And he says, how could it be possible for a man as old as me and a woman as old as my wife to give birth at our age? And then basically after that, we have a repeat of Pharaoh, except with a different king, and this guy's name is Abimelech, and the same thing happens with them. It's this sister-wife sort of situation happening again, right? Uh, and then finally, here in Genesis 21, 90-year-old Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And Abraham is 100 years old when he finally gets this son. And if you read through Genesis 15 to 21, just in one straight shot, one of the things that you'll notice is that there is this constant refrain from God. God is speaking to Abraham, and consistently and constantly, there is this refrain where God says, I will. I will give you this land. I will give you offsprings. I will make you a father of nations. I will establish a covenant with you and your house and your descendants. I will make your offspring into a great nation, and kings will come from you, etc., etc., etc. Right? It goes on and on and on. God keeps saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. And so by the time we get to Genesis 21, we see that God has kept every one of his promises to Abraham. He has given him a son. He has made his name great. He has made Abraham incredibly rich and incredibly powerful, so rich and powerful that foreign kings are eager to be on his good side. They are eager to enter into alliances with them. Later in life, when Sarah passes away and he's looking for a place to bury her, he goes to a foreign nation and a foreign king, and he says, listen, my wife passed away. I'm wondering, can I have a tomb somewhere in your land to bury her? And that king immediately says, anything you want, any tomb you want, even the best of our tombs, it's yours, just say it. This is how much God has built up Abraham. And it's important to see that in Genesis 21, God has given Abraham his son Isaac, even in Abraham's old age, and even though Abraham and Sarah doubted on multiple occasions, they doubted when God told them, they laughed when God told them, they doubted again, they doubted again, they doubted so they slept with Hagar and they gave birth to Ishmael. It happens again and again and again and again. And the takeaway from all of this is that Genesis 15 to 21 is not the story of all the things that Abraham has done and earned. It is the story of God's promises being given and fulfilled to Abraham, even when he didn't believe them. Genesis 15 to 21 is a story of God's promises being fulfilled and given, even when Abraham doesn't believe those promises. And that's how we come to Genesis 22. The mountain. So what happens on the mountain? Well, God calls Abraham, and he says, I want you to sacrifice your son. You know that son, the one that you've been waiting for, the one that you like, love more than anything in the world, right? Like, there's this one moment where Abraham doesn't have Isaac yet, and he's super rich, and he's super powerful, and he's got all this land, he's got all these things, and he's talking to God, and he says, God, what's the point of all of this stuff you've given me if you haven't given me a son? What's the point of anything that you've done for me if you don't give me a son? 
And so God is like, yeah, that son, yeah, I, I want you to kill him. And I want you to burn his body as an offering to me, for me. And this time, as you know, right, Abraham doesn't argue. He doesn't doubt. He doesn't question. He simply obeys. And he starts going up the mountain with Isaac, and Isaac, you know, he's a smart kid, starts cluing in, like, oh, something's weird. Like, we're going up, and, like, we're supposed to kill something, but, like, there's nothing to kill here, right? And he's like, Dad, um, there's, like, fire, and I see wood, but, like, I don't see the thing we're supposed to kill. And Abraham is like, God provides, right? And then what happens? Abraham builds an altar. He arranges it elaborately with wood. And then he puts Isaac on the altar. And as he's getting the knife ready to kill him, what happens? God calls out and he stops him. And he says, Abraham, now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you trust me and that you want to honor me and that you revere me and that you submit to me. And so Abraham's actions are counted as obedience and he gets blessed again. Right, so this, this moment on the mountain, right? This is an important moment. This is the defining moment of Abraham's life. This is like his, one of his greatest achievements. This is where he earns the title, the father of faith. It's not when he left Ur, right? It's this moment. This is the moment that earns him that title, that really seals the deal for it. And this is where we often get tripped up in the story. It is easy and often that we read this part of the story and we look at ourselves and we say, man, Abraham, so full of faith. Why don't I have faith like that? Or we ask ourselves, if God asked me to give up the thing most precious and most dear to me for no apparent reason, could I do that? Why can't I be like that? And then we say, okay, starting now or starting tomorrow or after this retreat or after this conference or whatever, I'm going to be a person of greater faith. But it's important to see here that Abraham's obedience does not come from the fact that he's just naturally a really obedient and faith-filled person. Genesis 22 is not about the faith of Abraham. Genesis 22 is about the unveiling of God's workmanship. Abraham is 100 years old at this point. God called him out of, he's over 100. We don't know how much over 100. We just know over 100. God called him out of Ur at 75, which means for the last 25 plus years, when you look at the life of Abraham, you see that God has been teaching Abraham the same lesson again and again and again and again. Abraham, you can trust me. I'm in control. I have not forgotten you. I have not forgotten my promises to you. You can trust me, Abraham. And that's what faith is, right? Trust. For the last 25 plus years, God has been the great teacher saying to Abraham, Abraham, you can trust me. I will not forget you or my promises to you. I did not forget you when you left the land of Ur. I did not forget you in Egypt. I did not forget you when foreign kings invaded and kidnapped your nephew. I have never forgotten you. 
For the last 25 plus years, God has been teaching Abraham, Abraham, you can trust me. I will keep my promises. I kept my promise to you even when you lied. I kept my promise to you even when you laughed. I kept my promise to you even when you didn't believe. And Abraham, I kept my promise to you even when you sinned against me. Abraham, you can trust me. I will keep my promises to you. For the last 25 plus years, God has been teaching Abraham this one lesson again and again and again and again. So what do we see when we look at the mountain? When we look at this act of obedience from Abraham on the mountain, what do we see? The good work that God had prepared beforehand for Abraham. We see that God has been preparing and teaching and training Abraham for this moment on the mountain. This moment of faith, this act of obedience is not the product of Abraham's inherent holiness or natural righteousness. It is the product of God's patient working and crafting and molding of Abraham. For his entire life, God has been shaping him and preparing him to do this work of good faith and good obedience. Everything that Abraham had experienced, everything that he had suffered, everything that he had enjoyed, everything that he had learned and been taught, they were all a part of God's master plan for him. In the mystery of his mercy, for no reason except his own, God chose Abraham and he says, you, I'm going to bless you. You haven't earned it, you don't deserve it, but I'm going to bless you anyways. And a part of that blessing is I'm going to help you become a person who's worthy of that blessing in the process. One thing you might not know about me, especially if you're new, is that um, I have like a lot of like random bits of knowledge because um, I just... Like, I don't sleep very well or much, so inevitably what ends up happening is I just kind of, like, watch or, like, learn or read, like, different things. And so maybe one of the most random bits of knowledge that I have in my arsenal is I know a lot about makeup, okay? Because there was this period of time where I got addicted to watching YouTube makeup tutorials, okay? Now, like, I can't do your makeup, but I know, like, a ton about it because I just couldn't stop watching. And I think it's for the same reason that, like, people watch, like, home makeover shows. It's sort of like the before and after, right? It's, like, really interesting to kind of see that process. And, you know, one thing that I noticed is, like, pretty much all makeup tutorials kind of start out the same way, right? They're, like, they, they all kind of follow the, the same format. They're, like, hi, guys, like, you know, Michelle here. Like, uh, today I just want to show you, like, a, a really, like, fun and light spring makeup. Like, this is just, like, a really great, like, daily makeup. I just do it on days, like, when I'm, like, not too busy. And so, yeah, here we go, right? And then it's, like, boom, screen change, right? And then what happens? It's them in the bathroom or, like, somewhere, and, like, they've got that ring light on. And then it's, like, a voiceover, right? And they're, like... First, uh, I'm going to start with the, um, a primer from Etude House. Um, I, just, I just really like this primer because it's just like, it's really light and it comes on really smooth. Um, and after that, I'm just going to put a little bit of BB cream on and it just, um, you know, it just keeps me from uh, having to use any foundation. I'm just going to use like um, maybe like two pumps of BB cream here and then I'm going to use a blending brush and I'm just going to blend all this together. Right? And, then, and then it happens. And so the, the interesting thing, you know, guys, if you, you know, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes I talk to guys like, yeah, I just, you know, I just want to, I want to date a girl who um, doesn't wear makeup. And I'm like, yeah, who do you think doesn't wear makeup? 
And then they're like, oh, like so-and-so. I'm like, bro, she wears makeup. <laughs> and they're like, no, she doesn't. I'm like, you think her eyebrows look like that normally? You don't think she pencils them in a little bit? Maybe just a little bit colors them in, right? And it's, there's this fascinating thing about makeup, especially when they get, like, really advanced, like, when they start to, like, contouring and, like, and all this kind of stuff. Because, like, as I'm watching them put on makeup, I'm like, okay, this is a no-makeup face. And then I'm like, okay, I see what you're doing. Like, okay. Like, oh, okay, that, like, evens out your complexion. Oh, okay, like, cool, cool, cool. That makes sense. That makes sense. But then at a certain point, I'm like, okay, that looks good. You should stop now, right? Especially when they're doing, like, eyeshadow. When they're, like, doing a really complex, like, oh, this is, like, a smoky eyeshadow. Like, I really like the Fenty palette, right? Like, when they start doing things like that, right? That's when, like, I'm watching it, and at a certain point, I'm like, stop. You're good. What are you doing? And they keep going. And then I'm like, no, you're messing it up. Like, you look worse now. What are you doing? Especially contouring. They're like, yeah, I'm going to just draw a triangle on my face, right? And I'm just going to, like, I'm just going to do it in. And then what happens? There's, like, this magical step that happens when you watch every makeup tutorial where they go, and now... We're just going to blend, right? And then they take a brush and they just going, cha, 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 right? And then when they do that, all of a sudden, whoom, it all comes together. And, and, and you see what they were drawing that whole time. But like, there's a point in there where it just looks like total chaos. Like, you're just like, what are you doing? This is terrible. You look worse. Stop. Go back to like six steps ago. You, you didn't need that. You looked way better. And then at the very end, you go, oh, oh I get it. This is the masterpiece that you've been working for. In the same way, <laughs> it's, it can be hard to see when we're in the middle of the process what is happening. Abraham can't see where God is going with everything. And at a certain point, he looks at his life and he says, isn't this good enough? In Genesis 17, Abraham has this moment with God. He's so frustrated. God has been promising a son for so long, but still there's no son, but he does have Ishmael. So he goes to God and he says, can't, can't Ishmael just be my heir? Why? why? Why can't Ishmael just be my heir? And God insists, no. I promise, I'm going to give you a son. And the promised son that you're looking for, it's not Ishmael. You see, Abraham, he, he can't see the masterpiece that God is making. He doesn't know where things are going. He just looks around at his life and he says, isn't, isn't this enough? And then at a certain point, he's like, God, aren't we going backwards? What are, what are we doing here? Because he can't see this good thing that God has prepared beforehand for him. See, when we look at the mountain, we shouldn't see just Abraham, the father of faith. It's important to see God, the master craftsman who has been shaping faith into this father. Now, all of this has massive implications on your individual Christian life. Okay? Let me... Let me just kind of tease out sort of, sort of two uh, implications, okay? So if, if we say that, that, that that's the principle that we see demonstrated from Ephesians 2, then we see that the great hope and anchor of the Christian life is that just like Abraham, God is working on you. So let me just tease out sort of two implications, okay? 
What kind of implication does this have on our sanctification? Well, this is exactly how it works. This is the heart of growing in holiness. That God is more committed to it than we are. And every day, in every experience, he is leading us constantly towards greater faith and deeper obedience. There may be times when on the path to holiness, you grow discouraged by your own sin. Or you grow frustrated by what you feel like is a lack of progress. And if that's you, be encouraged. Press on. Try again. God is leading you on a journey, and just because you've fallen or failed, it does not mean that God's commitment or promise to you has. If you're a Christian, it means that through every joy and every heartache, through every victory and through every defeat, in every sorrow and in every blessing, God is working on you. He is molding you. He is shaping you. He is perfecting you for the good works that only he knows. If your heart's been broken, if you have drunk from the cup of disappointment and bitterness and betrayal more times than you would care for, take heart, God has not forgotten you. He is preparing you for a good work that only he knows, and one day you will taste the fruit of it. This also has massive implications on your purpose. See, this truth, it gives us a new and better purpose in life. The great irony is that no matter who we are or where we go or how much we grow, we are constantly being tempted in the same way our forefather Adam was. We are always being tempted to be God, to know and be able to define what is good and what is bad. And here's the thing, right? This this is what sin does, right? Sin will try to tell you, okay, here are all the things in your life that are good and matter. And here's how you make it matter. And here's how you make it count. And here's how you make it worthwhile. And then here are all the things in your life that are bad and and, and don't matter. Did did you make a lot of money? Did, Did it really work out for you? Did you succeed in whatever venture that was? Are you moving up in your career? Are you enjoying your work? Do you find purpose in it? Well, then that matters. That's good. Do do you feel empty? Did you fail? Did it not work out? Are you losing money? Was that a bad choice? Well, Well, then that doesn't matter. Are you stuck in a career field you don't care about? Working for bosses who you detest? at a job that just constantly sucks the life out of you. That doesn't matter. It has no purpose. It has no meaning. It has no value. Why am I working? What is the point of my job? Does anything I do have any value, any meaning, any purpose? The great hope that this truth offers is Yes, in everything, even in the mundane and even in the ordinary, even in your regular nine to five, even in your Monday morning, God is putting you through his process and he is shaping you and working you even in the mundane and ordinary of your life. He is preparing you for a good work that only he knows that he has prepared beforehand for you. 
And every day you will be tempted to believe that it doesn't matter. It doesn't count. Today, the word of God invites us to surrender and to take a step of trust and say, God, I don't, I don't know what you're doing, but I know that you're in control. I know that as a Christian, I'm created in Christ Jesus. So teach me to submit and trust to this process that you are putting me through. Won't you pray with me? Gracious God, we are so thankful that you are committed to us, Lord, because we are in Christ Jesus. We are so thankful that you are committed to us. And God, if any of us uh, don't know the hope of Christ today, uh, God, we pray that you would um, open up the opportunities by which uh, we might come to know that hope of Christ, Lord. And so God, as we, as we leave today, as we end Sunday, as we enter into the new week of Monday with new temptations, new challenges, new trials, God, won't you continually remind us of this truth, that you are committed to us, that you are working on us, that you are leading us to and up our own mountains for the good works that you have prepared that only you know. So God, give us the hope to endure and what can often feel like hopeless and empty times. Give us the courage to hold on even when it feels like things are going wrong. Give us the endurance to be patient when we are in the middle of your process as we await for you to finish and work this completed peace in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.